Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Day, welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network, my name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed in honor to have with us Master Historian Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at the University of Exeter in the Department of History. And today we are discussing one of his newest books, A Brief History of the Atlantic, published by Robinson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor why did you write this book? Well, I've been trying to write for Robinson a series of shortish, well, they're 80,000 words, they're not that short, but shortish, accessible books on major areas and topics, and to do so without feeling constrained by the academic conventions of footnotes and discussing historiography. Um, I started that some time ago with a book in, uh, on slavery and another one on British history from since 1851. I've done ones for them, of course, on Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Germany, and on London. And I've also tackled a number of bodies of water and the societies around them. So I started on the Mediterranean, which we discussed on your program, and followed that with the Caribbean, which we likewise discussed. And now I've followed with the Atlantic, and indeed I have one on the Pacific, uh, which is forthcoming. And I find it instructive because I think one simultaneously needs to discuss the ocean, varying from its geology to the issues involving, involved in crossing it, from its fish life um, to its climate, but also how far these brought together or did not bring together the societies around their shores. When, historically speaking, did the Atlantic emerge? Uh, well, uh, you, uh, here we're talking about very much in deep uh, geological time, which um, I do go in with the um, in the book. But I think from my point of view, I'm most concerned with the human experience of the Atlantic. And there, what I would say is we're really talking about when people were able to cross it. Um, I think prior to that, it, uh, it is simply a large coastal water of possibly, um, uh, you know, uncertain space. Uh, it's the edge of the oceans. It's the edge of the world. 
Um, you don't know what is going to happen. And I discuss in the book, for example, um, you know, Dante's Inferno's um, sails into the ocean, etc., etc., notions like Atlantis and the Phoenicians. Um, to my mind, although there has been a lot of speculation about um, other societies crossing the Atlantic uh, and novels accordingly, I and mean, the popular novelist, for example, uh, Clive Kuzler, um, has uh, some of his characters, some of his Romans crossed. In my mind, I don't see any of any crossing. You've got the sort of, as it were, Viking diaspora or Odyssey or whatever you wish to talk to talk, talk about it. And there, um, you have a um, a definite crossing first via uh, Iceland to Greenland, and then from Greenland on uh, to what to North America, to Labrador. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that um, the, the Norse experience and the medieval Norse attitudes to the world, they had an idea of the world as in four quarters, um, with the Atlantic as the Western quarter. Um, I think it's fair to say that that did not have much of an influence in Europe as a whole, Christian Europe as a whole, let alone um, in other parts of the Atlantic. And we see no comparable activity in them in terms of sailing eastwards um, across the Atlantic, although there are, of course, um, uh, ocean currents, most famously the Gulf Stream, which would facilitate just such a transit. Why um, did the Romans or the Greeks, for that matter, not cross the Atlantic? Well, that's again an excellent question. I mean, it's very difficult to explain something that does not happen. I mean, in, as far as the Greeks are concerned, um, Greek uh, access to the Atlantic is rather limited. The the, the, um, the Mediterranean, uh, the pre-Roman Mediterranean uh, people that are most active there are the Phoenicians, and of course, uh, the Phoenicians. Um, uh, definitely sailed in the Atlantic, um, and as you may know, Herodotus reported that the Phoenicians circumnavigated Africa in about uh, 600 BCE, and there has been an attempt, uh, much very recently, um, to, uh, to use Phoenicia, which is a 20-meter-long replica of a Phoenician ship, in order to show that the Atlantic could have been... Um, crossed that way. That attempt was made in 2019. But I think it's fair to say that although there are modern claims of Phoenician remains in Brazil, uh, notably tools, inscriptions, and linguistic influences, um, they're all highly problematic. Um, and I think what we can only safely say is that Phoenicians definitely traded up the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic as far as Britain for the, uh, its production that would help the uh, in, in bronze. It was Bronze Age civilization. Um, and the Phoenicians definitely had a major base at Gades, or what we would call Cadiz, from about 800 BCE. Um, uh, but I don't actually see, although there is discussion that uh, Hanno the Navigator may have reached as far as um, the Canaries or uh, Gabon, uh, I don't think there's much evidence of it, and nor for that matter of the Carthaginians, which were a Phoenician colony, um, reaching the Azores. As far as the Romans are concerned, again, there is Roman naval activity and commercial activity 
um, in the European waters of the Atlantic. Caesar, for example, uh, developed uh, ships to fight the Veneti of southern Brittany, and he wrote about uh, their ship. Um, and the Romans, of course, crossed the English Channel. Uh, allegedly, uh, there was a circumnavigation of Britain in 83 or 84 CE uh, by a Roman fleet. Uh, but there's no extension to further islands, whether Ireland or Scotland, let alone to Norway into the North Atlantic. Evidence of the Romans trading with the Canaries, and both Plutarch and Pliny uh, described the Canaries. But I think that's about as far as one could say that the Romans definitely went. And you ask what implicit in your question is why they didn't go any further. And I'm not sure there was either opportunity or need. Um, and I think the two of those often are um, coterminous, as it were. And I don't really see that the Romans had a st strong impulse in that direction. And I would underline that by the fact we're not just talking about a single period of 20, 50 or 70 years. We're talking about um, the entire period of Roman presence on the seaboard, um, which was one of over four centuries. Now, in terms of opportunity and need, you, would it be correct to say that it helps to explain why American Indians did not traverse the Atlantic in the opposite direction from west to east? Yes, I think that's, again, a very good point. I mean, clearly, there were uh, native peoples who were able to navigate coastal waters off what we would now call Canada um, and, indeed, on the, uh, the United States in order to fish uh, and, in particular, in the case of Canada, to hunt um, um, hunt for the, you know, the sea mammals, seals, for example, walruses. And um, the Vikings in Greenland were to encounter Inuits, which obviously suggests a degree of eastern movement, though in this respect, one's looking at Greenland being uh, not particularly far from the, um, from the Canadian islands. Um, but there's no evidence that I am aware of, I'm quite happy to be corrected, um, that uh, there was a movement any further east. And, you know, one's got to be aware that these seas are difficult. They're difficult um, in terms of navigation, um, and uh, they're also difficult in terms of their waters. Now, um, if you look at the Pacific, as we know, our Micronesian and Melanesian peoples went a long way um, uh, across the southwest and finally into the southeast Pacific um, and also into the central Pacific, obviously, the whole archipelago. Um, I think it's fair to say that the navigational difficulties in the um, Atlantic were much, much greater. The seas, for example, between Iceland and the Faroe Islands are particularly stormy. And you've got to put up with about a thousand miles, about 1600 kilometers of storm tossed waters in that area. And then you move further west uh, for the waters between uh, Denmark and sorry, between Iceland and Greenland, which are also very tough. So I think it's fair to say that there were issues in opportunity and need. Um, you have not got overpopulation um, or population pressures that we know of in the um, 
eastern seaboard of the United States and modern-day Canada, north of that matter in Brazil, um, there is not a strong tradition of building ships that would have gone any great distance. I mean, I discuss in my book on the Caribbean uh, that there is mayor trading into the Caribbean, but there's no suggestion that that trading moved beyond uh, the Caribbean. And of course, it would be correct to say that you don't regard seriously the claims made uh, in the last 20 years that uh, China during the Ming Dynasty um, crossed the Pacific. No, I mean, I think that's a fantasy. I mean, uh, I remember when I was uh, visiting once a London book fact. And they had a, a the book there by, uh, and I think it's an Australian engineer who wrote a book about the Chinese uh, reaching um, uh, Florence, I think, in 1431. And I just said to the uh, to the store manager that that should be in the fiction section, not in the history section. So no, I don't think it's plausible. Um, uh, Chinese uh, vessels of the early 15th century at the waters of the Indian Ocean. They definitely reached the eastern seaboard of Africa, but there's no evidence that they crossed, for example, the South Atlantic. Why did the Iberians cross the Atlantic? By Iberians, of course, I'm talking about the Spanish and the Portuguese. Yes. um, Well, again, uh, a really interesting question. Partly that is the projection of their already... Uh, Christian expansionism, uh, the sense of messianic mission built into that, which you see in particular in the circle around Henry the Navigator, um, the extent to which uh, already in the um, 15th century, they've earlier they've conquered in the case of the um, the uh, Spaniards, the Castilians, they've conquered the Canary Islands, uh, the way in which the Portuguese have uh, began to settle Madeira in 1420. So in many respects, there is, if one wants to think about it geographically, a southward movement along the Atlantic coast in Africa, beginning with the capture of Ceuta by the uh, uh, Portuguese in 1515. Extent, um, the engagement with um, uh, what we would call the Americas, uh, including Brazil, is in many respects a, um, a collateral, um, a sequence, um, an overlap with this more important or long, more important thrust down along um, Africa with the attempt to gain gold, the attempt to find a route to India, the attempt to in some way um, a, a link up maybe with Prester John, the Christian ruler of Abyssinia, and regain um, uh, Jerusalem and usher in the second coming of Christ. So that is all very important in Iberian thought and activity. Um, and what that does is ensure that already um, the, there's an allocation of provisional with the Treaty of Torcidius of 1494. Um, is most famous uh, based on Alexander VI's division of the uh, of the Atlantic and the New World between Portugal and Spain. But already 
um, there had been uh, the Portuguese and the Spaniards already um, in, a, in a treaty of 1479, in other words, before Columbus had sailed, had already, uh, as it were, sought to um, arrange their um, corresponding interests in the Eastern Atlantic. And I think that, in a sense, um, we sort of treat the story as beginning with Columbus. It doesn't begin with Columbus at all. Uh, would it be correct to, to say that um, with their trade with uh, China, um, the entrepot of uh, the Philippines, um, that the Iberians uh, evolved a sort of world system of trade at this period? Yes, I think it's fair to say that in the 16th century, Exactly as you say. I mean, it takes place in a number of stages. There's the establishment of Iberian power in the Americas and the development of bullion production there. And bullion, of course, enables you to finance negative trade balances, uh, as it does today. Um, the um, There is the um, um, uh, the subsequent Spanish establishment from the 1560s of a base in the Philippines. The Philippines already has um, commercial links with China, or from their commercial links with China can be pursued. Um, and you get, as you uh, are implying, the development of the so-called Manila Galleon, the uh, sailing from Acapulco um, to Manila, and then back again, uh, carrying one million and the other way Chinese goods. And separate to that, uh, the Portuguese had already developed Macau from the 1520s trade there with China, uh, just as they developed in the 1550s a um, commercial presence at Nagasaki for trade with the Japanese. So exactly as you say, there is the development of uh, global uh, trade links, and that gives the Atlantic an additional significance because the Atlantic is the approach through which the Iberians, and indeed after the Iberians, the Dutch, English, and French, uh, trade into the Indian Ocean, um, because obviously the route to it through, um, through the Middle East is closed by Ottoman power. And also, uh, although there is, from Magellan onwards, um, voyages round south of South America, the easiest way to trade with um, the uh, Pacific is not those hazardous and distant waters, but in fact, to trade across the Atlantic, across the Caribbean, and then um, you would either trade from the Isthmus of Darien, with Panama Canal roughly zone, I mean, obviously the canal comes much later, down to uh, Peru and take up the... Uh, the silver from Potosi, uh, or you would trade across Mexico and then trade across the Pacific um, into uh, East Asia. Now, Columbus's vision, of course, had been to trade to Asia across the Atlantic. I mean, he discovers that the world, uh, uh, you know, he understood um, the Greek perception of the world as a sphere. Uh, the Greeks got wrong the size of the sphere, so the Americas are, as it were, um, it, you know, explored. The locals didn't need to be discovered. They knew they were there. It's explored 
um, as an intermediate landmass, and they initially hope there will be a sea passage between North America and South America. They discover there isn't. Uh, but in a sense, it is the Colombian vision, if you like, of getting to Asia by going westwards that helps to provide a great significance for the Atlantic, although that significance is to become much more important than had been envisaged because of these two new continents, North and South America, that are A, explored, and B, that are then economically developed. And why do the period of Iberian dominance um, uh, expire? Well, Iberian dominance in one respect is still there. There is still Latin American culture and a Latin American presence to an extent that is greater than that of, the, of many other European empires elsewhere in the world. Um, but in terms of formal political control, I think one's looking really um, at the enormously disruptive consequences of the Napoleonic Wars, which really create a fundamental crisis for the Spanish and indeed Portuguese imperial monarchies. Um, but it's also contingent factors play a role. I mean, in a sense, in the late 18th century, prior to that, under Charles III of Spain, I think it's fair to say that Spanish America is developing and is strong to an extent uh, that most people subsequently who are so brought up on the decline of Spain don't realize. So it's worth bearing in mind that if you're looking at 18th century a new world, the empire that collapses is not the Spanish empire, it's the French empire. Uh, France loses New France, well, loses Nova, Nova Scotia and its claims in Newfoundland to the British early on. It loses New France, uh, and, and in other words, most of, uh, of what is now modern-day Quebec, um, which it cedes in 1760. Um, it loses most of its islands, though not the key islands uh, of Hay, uh, but most of its islands in the 1760s, then again the 1790s, and finally Louisiana is sold in 1803. So it's the French Empire that goes first in the Americas, um, but the Spanish Empire rapidly follows. Or the Spanish Empire on the continental mainland. Spain is still an imperial power in the Caribbean, in Cuba and in Puerto Rico till 1898. Um, same with Portugal. I mean, people tend to think of Portugal as a weak power. Actually, Portugal was doing quite well in the 18th century. It preserved its independence from Spain. It had aligned itself with the economy of the leading uh, Atlantic um, economic power, Britain. Um, but again, what you've got is the disruption of the early 19th century combined with divisions in the Portuguese royal family. And you end up with two branches of the Portuguese royal family, one in Portugal, one in Brazil. Um, the Brazilian one identifying with Brazil. Brazil becomes an empire, of course. Um, and then that ends with republicanism. Um, I think it's still fair to say that there is a Portuguese presence culturally to this day in Brazil. 
And there was a Portuguese Atlantic uh, in the 19th century, which people tend to underrate. I mean, Portugal had colonies in Africa, uh, Portuguese Guinea, and much more prominently Angola. It had islands in the Atlantic, uh, the Azores, Madeira, the Cape Verde Islands. And although it wasn't any more the territorial ruler of Brazil. Brazil was still part of the Portuguese world. And it's interesting to think about how we tend to underrate the South Atlantic. I mean, most commentary is uh, from, as it were, uh, British scholars or French scholars or American scholars, and their account of Atlantic history is very much devoted to the North Atlantic. Actually, the South Atlantic is of enormous importance. And you can see this analogously with one of the modern topics that create great interest, uh, understandably great interest, which is the slave trade and slave economies and the end of slavery. And you could read the stuff and be under the impression that Virginia or Georgia were the centers of, of slavery, which, of course, is absolute rubbish. The leading slave economy throughout in the New World was Brazil, and the leading trade uh, throughout uh, was the supply of Brazil, notably uh, the two major supply routes from Angola and then from uh, West Africa. And again, that tends to be underrated. There are good books. You know, I'm not saying there's nobody written on it, but there are. But the fact of the matter is, there is far, far, far less written on the southern uh, um, Atlantic than there is on the northern on the northern Atlantic. Why did the British become the hegemonic Atlantic power, and why for so long, unlike, say, the Dutch? Um, I think the British become the hegemonic um, Atlantic power partly because of the uh, failure of France and the failure, of, as you mentioned, of the Dutch, partly because the other powers are, are more committed to land conflict and they only have so many military resources and they focus on the land, partly because of happenstance that in a sense the British or the English before them who in for example in the early 16th century under Henry VIII had not devoted much attention to the Atlantic Henry VIII had preferred to pursue goals on the continent uh, change their priorities and in looking at that you might talk about the rise of mercantile values in the political sphere uh, particularly in the um, late 17th and 18th centuries. And with that, the committee commitment to uh, a large navy and the commitment to sound and accountable public finances, all of which serve as the basis for and protection of a effective commercial system. How did travel and travel times change in the 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, in the 19th century, the principal travel change comes from steam and steaming the ocean. I mean, obviously, one can think of its more somber aspects, such as I discussed the Titanic, for example. Um, but steam provided predictable serv- uh, um, predictable sailing times um, and also uh, actually the economies of scale. So you get the much larger uh, ships being pr- produced, uh, uh, you know, in Rudyard Kipling in his poem Rolling Down to Rio from 1902 refers to weekly from Southampton, great steamers white and gold go rolling down to Rio. And, you know, that was literally the case. So you could guarantee 
um, transits, um, and uh, and there was a lot of um, investment into developing the uh, large ships, um, which iron ships with, uh, you know, Parsons marine turbines and such like, um, and really um, sort of lines like the White Star. I mean, obviously, the Titanic was a White Star one. It was running a weekly service to New York from Southampton from 1907, for example. So you've got that. And then in the early 20th century, of course, you get the development of air services. Um, And uh, initially, flying boats are important from the uh, mid-1920s. You can uh, go from London to Cape Town. You can go from Stuttgart to Natal in Brazil. The latter, the stops include Bathurst in Gambia. Um, You could go... um, from Svelte in Germany via Iceland and Greenland to um, New York in 1930, and I noted that that was 47 uh, flight hours. You go. There are airships, of course, that um, uh, that, uh, that go across the Atlantic. The first non-stop transatlantic uh, commercial flight was the Graf Zeppelin in 1928, and that goes from Friedrichshafen, which is on uh, Lake Constance. Uh, to Lakehurst, uh, New Jersey, and that took 112 hours in 1928. Uh, the return, when you've got westerly winds, I think you still get, obviously, taking a big influence today, was 72 hours. By 1930, the British R-100 um, airship is taking um, 78 hours to go from Bedfordshire to Montreal. And then, of course, you get the movement into commercial aircraft services. Um, So those are uh, begin just before uh, World War II um, between uh, New York and London. And then they're obviously stopped during the war and then they resume immediately after the war. And uh, they then are speeded up uh, when you've got the development of jet uh, services. So jet aircraft, uh, you get those from 1958 on the Atlantic services with the Boeing 707 and the DC-8, and they took seven hours to cross the Atlantic. Um, I mean, obviously, that was to be cut even further in a way that we no longer have when you had the supersonic Concorde, um, and that enters service in 1976. But, you know, you can now, I mean, uh, prior to COVID, um, uh, going from New York to London was like a bus service in the evening. You know, there were flights uh, more regularly uh, than every half an hour. How was the Great War fought in the Atlantic? Uh, the Great War was fought in the Atlantic essentially as a war against submarines. The, there was one major fleet action, and again, you know, we tend to forget uh, the South Atlantic. That was the Battle of the Falkland Islands in 1914 uh, when uh, British uh, battle cruisers uh, engaged uh, uh, the German Pacific uh, fleet, which had come, uh, had sunk a weaker British force off Coronel in Chile. 
Uh, it sails into the Atlantic in order to destroy the wireless station at Port Stanley in the Falklands and to seize the coal there in the coaling depot. Uh, but the uh, the British had sent two very powerful battle cruisers down there, the Invincible and the Inflexible, and they um, destroy the, uh, the the German force. After that, it's submarines. Uh, there are the occasional um, German um, disguised merchantmen acting as a commerce raider, but in effect, uh, it's submarines, and they produce a, a significant effect uh, um, with, you know, by early 1917, uh, the British losing over 600,000 tonnage of shipping a month to German submarines, a relatively minimal loss of German submarines. But the introduction from that May, May 1917, of escorted convoys cuts the shipping losses dramatically, as well as leading to the increase of sub- in the sinking of submarines. And as a result of that, the Atlantic ceases to be of strategic significance. So, for example, the Americans move over two million troops to Europe abroad on top of thousands of ships, and only 68 soldiers are drowned as a result of those U-boat uh, attacks. So, in other words, the U-boat war had lost its strategic significance, um, uh, and the Allies had, had, had won it. And how was the Second World War fought in the Atlantic? Well, the Second World War has parallels. I mean, the German surface warships have a longer presence. One can think of the Graf's Bay, which is a pocket battleship raiding commerce in 39. Um, one can think, I mean, you know, the other ships like the Neisnau and the Scharnhorst went over. One can think in particularly of the Bismarck in 41, um, and which was a, you know, uh, it was uh, had eight 15-inch guns, which would have been enough to take out convoy escorts, um, but it is sunk in May 1941, and really, um, and of course the um, the uh, the German the, the German surface shipping left in Brest, then moves um, up in early 42. Um, is is moved back into German waters. So thereafter, again, it's a submarine war and an anti-submarine war, conversely for the Allies, one in which um, the use of air power proves more significant than in World War I, uh, air power in terms of spotting um, and then um, dropping depth charges against um, uh, against the uh, the German submarines and the closure of the Mid-Atlantic so-called air gap to the west of the Azores uh, in October 1943, when Portugal, which was neutral, um, allowed um, first the British and then the Americans to establish air bases, was absolutely crucial in winning that. Why did British hegemony in the Atlantic uh, end? And if you had to... Um give a date, what, what year would that be? Um, well, I think British hegemony ended because of the exhaustion uh, of Britain, the decline of its empire, and the rise of the United States. Um, if I was giving a date for that, I think I would probably put it on uh, 1944. Uh, uh, the American Navy becomes more prominent. America is much richer Britain is bankrupt. Britain, of course, continued to have uh, colonial possessions in the Atlantic. 
Um, not least, in fact, in 1944, Newfoundland was still in the empire, as were the Bahamas, obviously the British in the positions in the Caribbean, and the British possessions in the southern Atlantic, Tristan da Cunha, Ascension, the Falklands, St. Helena. But in practical terms, America was dominant, and that dominance was to be enhanced after the war. America had far more to offer allies in terms of money, investment, commercial opportunity, military assistance. Um, so, for example, after the war, America is able to develop links with um, hitherto neutral powers during the war, place like Spain, for example. It's able to strengthen its links with Brazil, where it really supplants earlier British commercial and political influence, same in Argentina, um, um, develops its links in Morocco and benefits from uh, the withdrawal of the European and colonial powers. And in this sense, it becomes a struggle between uh, an American-led uh, West and the, um, the, the, the Soviet sphere, uh, which is present most obviously in Cuba and with the uh, Cuban troops moving with Russian, sorry, Soviet assistance to Angola and, and to Portuguese Guinea, former Portuguese Guinea, what we would now call Guinea-Bissau. Um, and that becomes the struggle. And that remains the struggle at the present moment. I mean, Venezuela is part of the informal um, Soviet empire. And of course, China uh, adds economic muscle uh, and, and increasingly political muscle to this confrontation. Would it be correct to say that as a historian, you do not really adhere to the so-called New Atlantic history? I think there's a lot of um, a lot of weaknesses in much writing of so-called Atlantic history. A lot of it, as I've said, is about the North Atlantic, doesn't know about the South, South Atlantic. A lot of it is very much focused on themes to do with the, um, uh, the British world, and even in the North Atlantic, doesn't have very much to say about the French. Um, a lot of it, as the naval historian Nicholas Rogers said to me, was the Atlantic with the ocean left out. In other words, it's often curious. There's often a curious ignorance about the physicality of the ocean and the implications that had for shipping, trade, migration, and other subjects. And I've tried in my book to add all of those in. Now, obviously, if I'd had greater space, it might have been a different book. But I think that within the space available, I think I'm, you know, I've tried to capture the, as it were, the naval dimension and also the extent to which you need to understand. And I tried to do this in the Mediterranean and the Caribbean, the, the, the nature of a literally a coastal area and what, how that is affected by being on a body of water and um, how the opportunities of being on a body of water are affected by what you do on the coast, developing harbours, building communication routes, establishing or not establishing political or military centres there. So I think there is an inherent dynamism there. Um, so yes, I would, I would say this is a, 
a better form of Atlantic history, and I certainly have tried to uh, avoid the rather glib and superficial diatribes against uh, racism or other factors that people often see in a very modernistic light without considering the complexity of the varied cultures uh, of Atlantic history or the history of any other body of water for that matter. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think the importance of Atlantic history and world history, I mean, obviously, it's not the largest ocean in the world. The largest is the Pacific. But in terms of, of the significance of interaction, regular interaction across the ocean, the Atlantic came first and the political and economic significance of Atlantic powers mean that in order to study world history, we ought to be able to do and put an emphasis on Atlantic history and to remember its complexities. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.